Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than normal. My dad and I were asked to speak at a virtual event for Families Against Narcotics. So he shares what it was like from his point of view as a father and a law enforcement officer with a son who was using and I share about my side of the story and I thought it was a really great conversation and I thought that you guys could uh, possibly benefit from hearing it. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. My name is Mario Nanos. I helped co-found the Washtenaw chapter of Families Against Narcotics. Um, As I mentioned, this is being um, streamed live on Facebook. So if you want to join in that way, you can. But I wanted to share with you briefly how I came to cross paths with somebody in the state of Texas by the name of Brett Morris, who um, is uh, one of the most prolific podcasters in the United States. That's not an embellishment, by the way. Um, Brett hosts a podcast that is recovery-focused that draws over a thousand people uh, per week. And I'll let Brett verify the numbers, but he's even had um, podcasts that he's hosted with a couple of other people in other states that have drawn between 10 and 20,000 people. So this is a guy who's doing a whole lot of things right. uh, And he has an incredible story to share and that leads me to how I got to meet him. Um, you guys, Brandon, can everybody see you and your head of hair that I wish I yeah. had? Okay. Well, they can so, see. Yeah. So, yeah. Brett, Brett, Brandon has been with us nearly from day one. We met Brandon at the 242 Community Church, and he was our AV guy um, on loan from the good folks at the 242 Community Church. And um, Brandon uh, left Michigan to move to Nashville, Tennessee. And through the wonders of technology, he's still able to support us via Zoom despite being in Nashville. And I give Brandon all the credit because since he started doing this, we don't have Zoom snafus. Um, Knock on wood with that one. Um, but we don't have problems with Zoom since Brandon took over. But Brandon, despite being our Zoom coordinator, is always looking out for Washington fan and for people in recovery. And case in point is he reached out to me uh, 
I don't know, what was it? Three months ago? It was in yeah, the winter. Three, three months ago. It yeah. was three months ago. And he said, look, I just, I crossed paths with this guy. And at the time, I didn't know it was Brett's dad. I found out about Brett's dad, who's puffing away on that stogie uh, up there, which is awesome. And um, uh, Brandon at that time said, I crossed paths with a guy that I think you might want to bring on board as a guest speaker at one of your forums. And I said, all right, what's his story? What's his name? And I heard about it. And I thought, you know, send me an email with his information. Brandon did that. Brandon, I can't thank you enough for that because the reason this is happening is primarily due to you and the way you care about our community even though you you are in your community in um, Nashville. And, um, but as everybody who is Zooming in knows, this is not um, specific to a community. We all share the same community of recovery. And I'm thankful for you for uh, opening the door with Brett. So I talked with Brett. I got to know Brett over a series of phone calls. And um, I, uh, he shared his story with me and somehow the topic of his, not somehow, I mean, I asked about his mom and dad and he talked about his mom, he talked about his dad and he mentioned that his dad is a, a member, a retired member of law enforcement. And it struck me that, you know, I get a lot of, requests from families and parents who, um, you know, they struggle with their child's addiction and being joined at the hip with them on that recovery journey. And I thought, my goodness, we got a guy here with an amazing story whose father is a member of law enforcement. And I asked Brett, what did you, you don't mind me asking, what did your dad do in law enforcement? And he told me he was a retired sergeant in the a retired Texas State Trooper, and he was a sergeant. That really piqued my interest because I wanted to get Sergeant Morris's take on his son's addiction and how that affected him as a dad, how it affected him as a retired Texas State Trooper. And I asked Brett if he would ask his father to join us on our Zoom meeting today, his father, who is uh, on your screen, um, uh, said yes. And I'm, I'm so grateful that he did because we're all gonna learn a lot from these two gentlemen. And to show you where they are in terms of helping people um, battle the disease of addiction, um, tragedy um, struck the Morris family, um, Brett's um, grandpa passed away uh, not long ago, last week. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know if Brett was going to be here with us today. And, um, but he is. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Uh, I told him he didn't have to do it, that if needed, we would share our stories and make do with what we've got. But but Brett is here, and so is his father. And um, 
I'm just so thankful to you both. And before I cut over to Brett and we let Brett share his story, um, Sergeant Morris. Yes, sir. Why don't you let everybody see that that T-shirt you got on? I am aging like a fine cigar. What does that say? Uh, a little leathery, full-bodied, and a little and a little leathery. That's awesome. And you know, when I saw your picture, when Brent sent me your bio and your picture, I thought it reminded me of Ernest Hemingway. And uh, <laughs> you, you, uh, uh, you're rocking it out there with that beard and that cigar. Thank so, you. And why don't you, before we cut over to your son, right before this meeting started, and I, I talked with you about how you came up, why don't you tell us specifically what you did in the world of law enforcement with the Texas State Troopers? Because that takes it to a whole number, another level. Well, the last 22 years of my career before I retired the first time, I was uh, undercover narcotics for Texas State Police. So my job was to track traffickers and drug uh, uh, transporters and, and pushers and arrest them and prosecute them. And so everything about me was is anti-drug. Before we get to Brett, I'm gonna kind of switch it up because I wanna give you an opportunity um, to just share your perspective on this, not only as a dad, but as a member of a law enforcement and as an undercover narcotics member of law enforcement. So take us back to Brett's story. And okay. when, when did you first found out? And how did, just in general, how did it affect the Morris family your employment as a member of law enforcement and where are you today with your son and um uh it started right. off there sergeant morris um so brett started to my knowledge and i i didn't know quite as early i i knew when he the first not maybe not the first time i knew when he was probably 12 maybe we were at my sister's house for Thanksgiving and um, there was uh, most of my family does not drink, but my sisters do and their husbands. And so um, wine was served with the meal and some of the adults drank their wine and some didn't. And after we left the table and went to watch the cowboy game or whatever we were doing, um, found out later that um, Brett had gone into the dining room and he was draining all the wine glasses. Um, I think he was 12 and he was draining the wine glasses. So he got started just, early. Right. Okay. So my sister told me, you know, that that had happened and I didn't want to overreact and make a big deal out of it. Cause I didn't want him, you know, if you act like you shouldn't do that and it's bad, then that's what they're going to do. So, you know, I, my recollection, I asked him kind of what he thought of it and what he thought of the taste and whatever. And, and, you know, encouraged him not to be doing that because it was illegal and he was 12 years old and he needed to turn those numbers around and be 21 instead of 12 before he was legal to, to drink. Um, but I, I've since found out that 
he continued to uh, drink when he could. And, and somewhere not too long after that, maybe 14 or 15, I think he started to smoke weed a little bit um, with some coworkers. And he, he did a pretty good job of hiding it. Um, there were times when I knew that he was, um, if he wasn't intoxicated, he was at least under the influence. Um, and, but he was a, a pretty good kid and he was always a very, uh, compliant kid. Um, and so his mother who was raised, um, his mother and her brother, I, I always say, tell them that there's no, no two kids in the world like they were because their parents said be home at nine. They were home at eight 30. Um, they said, you know, don't do this. And they didn't. And so my wife could never comprehend that our kids would mislead us and do something that was was against our wishes and I was pretty much exactly the opposite if my dad said be home at 11 I got home at 1101 I was in the driveway at 11 you know so um and I pushed the envelope um if I didn't break the rules I got all the way up and straddled the line um and so I I was I was a totally different personality from my wife and so um I knew that most kids are at least something like me and nothing like her. And so I tried, I was considered to be hard on the kids because I didn't believe them. I didn't always trust them. Uh, sometimes I said no, just, just because. And um, so that was, that was a little bit of strife in our household, just in the, the raising of the kids. But as Brett got older, I later found out that he started to experiment with uh, lots of other controlled substances. And ultimately, I think his drug of choice was probably methamphetamine, um, which was very scary to me because there are very few people who get addicted to methamphetamine that that stop using until they die. Um, And so Brett moved out to go to college. I think he was 18. Well, first he went to China the year that he turned, he turned 17 in China. He was on a mission trip and he and a buddy were there, um, quote unquote, unsupervised. They stayed with some friends of ours that were missionaries, but I have no idea what they did or, you know, he's around, he's on the other side of the world, so they could be doing anything. Um, so he came back home and when he graduated from high school, he was a homeschool, uh, both our kids were homeschooled. When they graduated, uh, he went to, to college um, and he moved out and moved into a house with a bunch of guys. Um, and I knew they partied and I suspected that they smoked weed, but I, I didn't know anything about the meth at that point or the cocaine or the heroin or the LSD or any of the other uh, controlled substances that he's at least uh, experimented or dabbled in. Um, and so as as the months went by, um, it became more apparent that he um, was uh, probably addicted or at least very in a very committed relationship with multiple different kinds of narcotics. Um, and his sister, who had moved out, she's a year younger than he is. She had moved out and was living with a friend, and then she ended up she was married. and And so Brett Brett and her, his sister were always very close, and so she kind of got the lowdown on things and she would tell my wife and I what was going on. And so that was alarming to us. Um, And uh, we both, I mean, 
I don't know if this is a faith-based uh, program or not, but I'm go ahead. So, yep, go so ahead. I'm telling it from the faith-based side. Um, we were disappointed because we knew that Brett had been raised in the church. Um, we knew he had been raised in a Christian home. Uh, we knew that he'd been raised in a law enforcement officer's home. Um, and for the vast majority of his life, I think I got into narcotics uh, when he was four or five. So he can barely remember me as a uniform state trooper. He always knew me with, as a guy with long hair and a beard. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me, we were, we were concerned on multiple levels. Um, and I don't think I was, I mean, maybe I was embarrassed to a slight extent um, that I'm a narcotics officer and my son is, is a narcotics user. Um, but my concern was not my embarrassment. My concern was his life choices and the consequences that those could lead to, um, whether that meant incarceration or uh, overdose death or uh, injured or killed in a drug deal gone bad, which happens all the time. Um, and so I was more concerned about that and his safety. And so I think his mom was, you know, probably even more concerned and, and she didn't have any inkling or knowledge uh, of how bad it could be. And so I tried not to share a lot of that with her, what could happen and what I saw on a daily basis. Um, I think she was much more, she beat herself up wondering what she did wrong for Brett to end up to be an addict. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say I never thought about it, but I, I raised him right. We raised him right. And he makes choices and his choices have consequences. And so I've always been one that you make a choice and then the choice makes you. And so um, I obviously wanted him to make different choices, but I didn't feel like I had done anything to encourage him. Uh, I was not, uh, I mean, I was strict, but I was not abusive. I was not, I mean, he didn't have the upbringing that a lot of kids do where they see their parents, you know, drinking to excess or using drugs or partying with people. And he didn't need to use drugs because, um, you know, his dad was beating him. And when he got home, he would be beaten. And so he'd go away and use drugs to help cope with, you know, whatever kind of problems like that. And so I didn't take a whole lot of ownership in that because I don't feel like, I own a whole lot of that, frankly. Right. Um, so as Brett, as the months went on, it, it was obvious that he was uh, was using speed pretty regularly. Um, he was losing weight and uh, his uh, involvement with his mother and I was becoming less frequent. And um, it was almost always on the phone and almost you know, very rarely in person. And so it was just, there were some telltale signs. And so on uh, Super Bowl Sunday of 20, I don't know, 13, I think it might've been 14, but I think it was 2013. Um, got a call from his sister, I believe. And, uh, or maybe it was from him. I can't remember. And he had been arrested for DUI. 
he was uh, he was delivering pizzas. That was his job. And so evidently between deliveries, uh, he and his coworkers would uh, would drink quite heavily. And he had been on a break and had 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 quite a bit to drink and was texting his girlfriend that he could see double or triple and and whatever. And then the next text was, I think I'm going to jail. So long story short, he's delivering that he's intoxicated and he hit uh, five parked cars and overcorrected from the last parked car um, into someone's front yard, through their yard, hit the fence and his truck came to rest uh, in their house or at least against their house. Um, And so he did go to jail. Um, And so my wife, obviously we were not pleased and she was uh, pretty much scared to death. Um, I was plenty worried because that happened in Dallas and I knew that he was going to the Dallas County jail, which um, having been there dozens, if not hundreds of times myself, um, it's a scary place. And I know I'm leaving every time I can't imagine being locked into a cell. I've talked to lots of guys that tell you that county jail is much scarier than prison. Um, just because of prison, it's kind of final and you're just the, the mindset is different of people who are in prison as opposed to guys who are in jail. Um, plus, when you're in prison, you tend to be a little more sober after a while than you are when you get into jail. Because people get in and out and they come in all kinds of, of physical states and mental states. But um, so we left him. Um, I had to fight with my wife to leave him in jail for a couple of nights to let him uh, just let him, you know, reap what he sowed a little bit. Um, and and I, had, I told her on more than one occasion that if he was in our local jail instead of the Dallas jail, I'd leave him there until court because um, it's a much smaller jail and not nearly as dangerous and stuff. So um, I think he was in there four days. Um, and I had a friend that worked for the district attorney's office in Dallas that was checking on him um, on the computer. And so on the fourth day, he called me and said, hey, they are reducing Brett's bond to uh, where I think they were reducing his bond to where a hundred dollars. So if if one of his friends came up with, <coughs> excuse me, with ten dollars, they could get him out of jail. And I told my wife, I said, it's time to go get him because we didn't want one of his friends to, you know, come up there with ten dollars and get him out of jail and take him back to his life and him go right back to the party life that he was living. So we went down that night, got him out of jail. And uh, I, I can't remember. I think he asked where we were going. And I said home. And so we took him home. Um, he didn't want to be at home again. He had lived on his own for three years, give or take. Um, and so there were rules. And I understood that he was, you know, 20 years old. But um he, he was treated like he was 10 or 12. Uh, he didn't, he didn't have a vehicle, so he couldn't go anywhere. I explained to him that, um, he needed to find employment because I had already raised him and he was more than 18. And so if he was going to live in my house, he was going to have to pay room and board. Um, because I didn't want him to think that he could live in our basement, quote unquote, forever, even though we don't have a basement. Um, I, and I wanted, I didn't want to make it difficult on him, but I wanted him to realize that if he didn't want to live at home with his mom and dad, that he needed to 
get gainful employment and start making the right decisions and get himself to a place where he could live away from home again. So within the first week or two, he got a job um, and it was about seven miles uh, from our house to his job. Um, so he had a mountain bike. And so he rode his bike to and from work seven miles. And when he first started that job, it was late February. Um, and Texas is generally a warm place, but in February and March, it cannot be very warm. So there were days where he rode in the freezing cold to and from work. There were days when he rode to and from work in the rain. Um, and my wife wanted to take him and I was like, absolutely not. Make him ride his bike. If he's cold, if he's wet, then that helps him realize if I don't want to be cold and wet, I got to act like an adult and not be a drug user. Um, and one day on his way to work on the bike, uh, I don't remember if he's on the sidewalk or something, but he, he hit a slick spot and he went down and he broke, I believe his left thumb and maybe uh, forefinger, but he broke something in his, in his left wrist area. So, uh, I think she took him to, to work a couple of days, the first couple of days after that. And then it was back to, uh, riding the bicycle with a broken arm to and from work. Um, so fast forward a little while, I have a friend who owns a business and uh, Brett was, was doing better and, and he, he had to go to court mandated uh, AA meetings. And for the first several months, uh, I think he went just to get his paper checked so he could stay on probation and not get in trouble. Somewhere in the three or five, three to five month time, something clicked in his brain and he understood that he was an alcoholic and he was a drug addict and he needed to be there. And so then the program actually started to work for him and his recovery began. Um, so I had a friend who owned his own business and he was looking to hire a couple of people. And I reached out and, and he said, I'm going to hire two guys in August. Um, and he said, I've got enough work to keep them busy, but come December when this job is over, I'm only going to keep one of them. He said, I'll hire him as a favor to you, but I won't keep him if he's not a good worker. And I said, I don't have any problem with that. I said, he's got a work ethic and he'll work for you. And he'll, at the end of the four months, you'll be hiring him. I know that. Well, he did. And long before four months was over, his boss was complimenting him on his work ethic and was buying tools for him and was kind of a secondary dad for him at the work site. Um, so he worked there. I can't remember. He'll know four or five years. Um, and when he moved, when he moved to uh, that job, it was about 20 miles, I think, 15 to 20 miles one way to work. And so I bought a 250cc scooter um, for Brett and said, here's a scooter you can ride it to and from work. Again, I don't care how cold it is. I don't care how hot it is. I don't care if it's raining. You wrecked your truck. This is what you can, you can ride this or you can walk matters not to me so when he started at work uh he all of his co-workers called him scooter and uh because he rode a scooter to work and so he rode you know 15 miles each way on the interstate some of it on a 250 cc scooter um but he never missed a day of work he wasn't late he worked hard he worked late he did whatever was asked of him and somewhere in the first, I don't know, six or eight months after he had had a change in his 
attitude and, and he was in recovery and he was uh, committed to his recovery. He and his boss were talking one day and, and his boss asked me, he said, so how's your relationship with your dad? And he said, it's a lot better than it used to be. And his boss said, well, why do you think that is? And Brett said, because I'm making a lot better decisions than I was making earlier. And I'm and it's basically, he, he said in so many words, because I'm becoming a man and I'm being responsible and I'm, I've got a job and I work every day and I do the right things and I go to my meetings at night and I'm not doing stupid stuff. And uh, I think they had that discussion on more than one occasion over the next four or five years while Brett worked there. Um, but I think he might have had one hiccup the first six or eight months where he went over to somebody's house or they went somewhere and um, he had he had some some alcohol. Um, and he realized that he had no business being on a scooter or driving or anything. And so he spent the night on the guy's couch, uh, texted us to let us know, Hey, I'm spending the night. And so when he got back, we had a little discussion about that, that it wasn't a lot because I could tell that he was more disappointed in himself for having that hiccup than he was, than, than, you know, than I could be and that he was owning it and that he realized that he had to be a little more vigilant and not even be around alcohol or drugs for a period of time until his, till he had built up the, the fortitude to say no and to be okay with being where alcohol was, but not having to have some of it. Um, and so that was really the only setback that I remember. So he lived with us. I'm going to say it was close to two years, um, but he had a job and he was making money. And so, um, he got to the point where he was able to move out and get an apartment and uh, got another vehicle. And he's just he's done nothing but really good things ever since. And so I'm very proud of the man that he has become and is continuing to be and, and the uh, positive influence he's been in the for the recovery community. Started his podcast a little over two years ago. Um, and so he's 115, give or take episodes in on that. He's been on several other people's podcasts. Um, he's a leader in his NA group, um, got married, has become a father, uh, changed jobs a couple of times, and he's got a really nice job. Uh, he's got a career now, um, making good money, working hard. And so his mom and I couldn't be any prouder of of the man he's become. I told my wife when he got arrested and he wasn't injured, he wasn't killed. He didn't kill anybody. He just did a lot of property damage. I said, you know what, if this is the bottom and this is where he has to hit and then he goes up from here, I said, it seems like a big deal right now, but five years from now, this will be a blip on the radar. And we're about eight years past that. And it's, it's just a small blip on the radar. So Sergeant Morris, um, first of all, that's awesome. And you know, I <clears throat> our meetings are comprised, it's it's like a third, 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 a third people in recovery, a third uh families and friends of people in recovery, and a third <clears throat> white collar, blue collar, you know, people that work at schools, engineers, school principals, uh college professors, and the, the group that one of the reasons I'm so glad you're here, Mr. Morris, is because a lot of times parents 
are thinking, what did I do wrong? You know, where did I go wrong? What do I got to do uh, <clears throat> to help? And you, I didn't know your story until I just heard it, but you kind of did everything right. And I'm going to let, I'm going to let Brett chime in here soon, but um, uh, you kind of did. And I don't know if that's because of your background in narcotics, but um, I will tell you this, at, at our meeting that we held at the Michigan Theater, um, Dr. Nora Vault, uh, or well, Dr. Fred Blow from the University of Michigan went around and asked everybody, if you were going to give advice to people in terms of helping someone in recovery, what advice would you give? And Denise Illich, who is a member of the Board of Regents at the University of Michigan, uh, addiction has affected her family. And she said, don't ever, 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 ever give up on someone with an addiction. And as I was hearing you talk, you didn't ever, 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 ever give up on your son. And, and you did it in a way that you put up boundaries, which is what we hear from the professionals, right? And, and I'm certain that we're going to hear from Brett, I think, on how he, that kind of structure that you put in place to help him uh, was a difference maker to him. And I thank you, sir, for sharing your story. Brett, why don't you go ahead and take over? Because I'd love to have your dad. He's probably heard your story so much that I don't know if he wants to hear it again. <laughs> I don't before, know that he's heard it that many times. Okay, so before he zooms out, why don't you go ahead and get started? I thank you for being here, especially knowing what you've been through the last week. And with that, Brett, you you know, why don't you take the next, we usually like to keep about 15 to 20 minutes for questions. So, okay, yeah. you know, over the next 15 to 20 minutes, Go ahead and share your story. Awesome. Uh, I guess I can start from the beginning. And I, and I saw a, a question come in from, from David Gordon. And he said that it's uh, a true, he was talking about, he was referencing what my dad was sharing about. And he was saying, you know, that most people have more than one relapse. And I, I definitely had more than one relapse. And I think it was kind of funny that my dad said I only had the one um you know the first two years of of my recovery journey after that arrest were kind of up and down you know I, I felt like I had one foot in recovery and one foot not in recovery and I was trying to figure things out you know and I think that 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 second job that he was alluding to that was with his one of his friends that owned the company like I think that had a lot to do with me trying to to figure things out and you know there were some good influences at that place of employment and there were some not so good influences but you know to go back to to what you had said about starting at kind of the beginning um you know my dad touched on it and you know i was i was a homeschooled k through 12 and um you know it's kind of a, a newer realization i think i've come to but i think uh, for me, I, I've struggled with some social anxieties, and I think that some of that 
may be attributed to to my schooling and and not being around as many people but you know on the on, in the other hand you know we we were heavily involved in church and i was in a lot of different church groups and so i was around people um but i always kind of felt like an outcast an alien kind of i always felt like there was something different about me than other people i never felt like i could be comfortable in those kind of social situations and you know like he was alluding to <laughs> the the first taste of wine at, at my aunt's house when I was 11 or 12 you know I, I can remember tasting that wine and I didn't really like the the flavor of the wine but I remember that I liked the way that it made me feel I liked you know because I had never had it before and I just kind of felt like this calm and just kind of mellow and uh, I just I, I really liked the way that that it affected me and and so that was kind of that moment where it's like I like this and I'm gonna continue to pursue this path you know i want to i want to feel that feeling again i want to see what happens if i drink more i want to you know and and with my dad being in narcotics as well i think part of it was was a, a, a general curiosity about what drugs felt like what it was like to be high what different substances would do and a lot of it was just me not being comfortable with myself, me not feeling okay with who I was and just wanting to escape reality and just try to find that feeling again that I had when I was 11 or 12 with that, with those little sips of wine. And, um, you know, it just, the, the progression of, of addiction is, it can be so rapid, you know, like he was alluding to started out with drinking and smoking weed and then moved out of the house. And then it, it was like the world just kind of opened up, you know, my apartment was in not the best part of town. And, you know, there were drug dealers that lived in my building and, and in the surrounding complex and stuff. And it was just really easy to get different substances. And that was when, kind of that experimentation phase of my use began and I just wanted to try anything I could get my hands on. I wanted to see what different substances felt like. And, uh, you know, I, I just had a, a real curiosity. I didn't have any fear surrounding drug use. I didn't think about the negative consequences. I didn't think about death, you know, at that point in my life, in my, early twenties, I was at this point of feeling invincible and just wanting to see what everything was about and didn't realize the consequences, didn't realize that I could become addicted, didn't think long-term, you know, I didn't have any plans. I didn't, when I imagined the future, I didn't see myself living long enough to make plans, to have a family, to worry about a retirement, to worry about trying to get a good job. I didn't have any of those worries because I didn't plan on living beyond my twenties, if I'm being honest. And so that was, that just kind of became my way of life. It was just any time I could get my hands on anything, I would take it. Um, and, and a little further down the road, I found methamphetamine and, man, that was, that was it. I remember the first time I took it and just, it was like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. The search is over. I found the solution. I found the cure. This is what I need. Like my life is going to be so good because that first time I got high on meth, it was just like this euphoria. And I felt like I had all of this energy and this focus. And I just felt like 
this is what has been missing in my life for the last 20 years. And, and I found it. It's right here in this little bag. And so I decided at that point, like the rest of my life is going to be pursuing this drug because it makes me feel so good. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know where that would lead and I didn't know, you know, where, where my life would go. And I can remember after I, I, I had moved into uh, my dealer's house. <laughs> oh boy. So I had, uh, I, I had pretty much an unlimited supply and I can remember I lived there for several months. And at one point he had cut me off cause he said I was using too much and I'd found a new guy. And, and I gotten to this point where even the other meth users in the house were telling me that I was using too much. And I had like this realization. Um, I, it's kind of a weird story and I, I guess I'll, I'll be candid and I'll share it. I had, I had done some DMT with a, with a buddy and uh, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar with DMT, cause it's kind of a more, I don't know, it's not like a mainstream common drug, uh, but it's still kind of popular, but it's a hallucinogen and it's a really short trip. And I had this trip where I was at my own funeral and I saw basically from like a third person, like aerial view of my funeral. And it was my mom, my dad, and my sister, and nobody else showed up. None of my, my friends, nobody else showed up. And you know, the pastors up there giving like a really generic, uh, service and my parents and my sister are talking throughout the whole service and talking about like what a failure I was and, how my life had amounted to nothing and just all the, all this negativity and all these things about, you know, I had so much potential and I wasted it. And, and I remember coming out of that trip and that was kind of like a, 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 like the first little awakening that I had that my life was not going in the right direction. And that's when I decided that I would, I didn't want to do the meth anymore. I decided that I, I couldn't do that anymore because my life was just not going in the direction that I needed it to go or the way that I thought it should go. And I remember I called my sister and I, I broke down on the phone and I told her what was going on. And, you know, she, she knew that I had been dabbling in drugs for years. Um, but I told her that I had been on meth for a pretty consistent basis. I think it was probably about a year at that point. And I told her that I just, I had to get out of that house. I couldn't live with my dealer anymore. Like I I'm done with it. I gotta, I gotta get clean, but I didn't have any kind of recovery in my life. I didn't have any kind of connection to recovery meetings. I wasn't aware of anything like that. And I thought that the meth was my problem. And so I moved in with my sister and I, I put down the meth and then I picked up drinking again and I did it very, very, very heavily. And it wasn't very long into being in this new environment and drinking mixed with like my dad was talking about being a pizza delivery driver, you know, driving for a living and drinking all the time that, that the two, uh, the two just didn't mix. And it was pretty, pretty quickly into that, that I did have that, that DWI and, and hit the cars and the house and <laughs> did all the property damage and, and ended up going to jail and kind of had a, uh, had a second kind of spiritual awakening in jail, realizing like, this is where my life is going. And I don't really want to continue on this path. I don't want to continue. Basically I, I wanted to continue to get high, but I didn't want to continue to suffer the repercussions of my actions was kind of the point that I arrived to in recovery. I, uh, 
And, and I kind of went into meetings with that idea of maybe I can learn from these people how I can use successfully and not have all these negative consequences in my life. And, you know, that's just not how, that's not how it works. And so I kind of had that, that back and forth where I couldn't, I couldn't decide if I wanted to be in recovery or if I wanted to use, and I kind of went back and forth for a while. And, and I can remember, um, it was a little over a year or so into this recovery journey and going to meetings and being on probation and getting my paper signed and all that. Uh, I had, I had made a pretty strong connection with this guy named Tim and he pulled me aside after one of the meetings. Cause, and for those of you that have been to like 12 step meetings and stuff like after the meeting, everybody gets outside and they're chain smoking cigarettes and talking in the parking lot and, you know, just kind of having a good time. And, uh, you know, he pulled me away from the, from the group and it was just he and I, and, and he looked at me right in the eyes and he said, if you continue to live your life the way you're living with one foot in recovery and one foot out and going back and forth and, and, you know, you'll use for a day and then you'll come back to recovery and just this continue flip flop. He's like, you are going to die. And he was so serious and so sincere. And it was just like, that was the moment that I realized like driving home, like thinking about that conversation. And then that, I, that, that thought of, of the funeral that I had seen in my head, all that kind of came together in this moment. And it was just like this overwhelming sense of like, I have to make a commitment. I'm either going to stop drugs completely, or I'm going to stop going to meetings and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to continue down this path of destruction. And that was seven and a half years ago. And I haven't had a drink, haven't had a drug, haven't done anything in that seven and a half years. And, you know, my life has, has flourished and I've been blessed with, with a lot of things, you know, my, my relationships with my family have been restored. I've been able to get a a good job. I was able to get married. I have a daughter, you know, all these blessings that have come from, from stopping the drugs and trying to learn to live a new way of life and begin to try to implement some of these things that I've been, been learning and being taught in these meetings. Was his name Tim? The guy that okay. So, why did Tim choose to reach out to you? Like, is it just serendipitous, or did you know Tim? You must have known him through meetings. But yeah, he, he, he and I, he, and not only did he reach out to you, but he did it in a way that was like he didn't mince words. Right. And right. talk a little bit about Tim, and. One thing I'm always curious about with people who make a decision to get into recovery, because it's not easy. It's recovery is not easy and, and it's hard work and it takes commitment. It, it, you know, just like any other chronic debilitating, acute relapsing disease. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, what so talk a little bit more about Tim, but what was it that just caused you to say, I'm done, I'm gonna give this a go? And you know, oftentimes when I ask people, there are children, there's a friend who pulled them aside, like Tim did with you, or there's there's this seminal moment that's like, boom, I gotta, I gotta do something, or I'm not gonna make it, or my life isn't gonna be what it could be. Uh, so talk about Tim and talk about what it was that caused you to move in a direction 
toward recovery and to now have this beautiful daughter. I'm assuming you've got an equally beautiful wife. And um, yeah, there's that beautiful smile. So, so look, so, so look, talk about that, will you? Please? Yeah, yeah, of course. I think a lot of uh, just as far as, as Tim goes, he and I had gotten close in the meetings and he had a similar story to mine and he, he too had flip-flopped back and forth for a long time. You know, he would come into the program, he would get a few months, he'd go back out, he'd come back, he'd get a few months, he'd go back out. And he had done that same pattern for years and years and years and years. And, you know, he had been around before I was there and, you know, fortunately the last time that he came back in, you know, he's still, he's got a little bit more time than I do. I think he just celebrated eight years or eight and a half, nine. I don't know. He's got a lot of time now. Um, but I was there when he came back for the last time and, you know, he and I got really close. He was somebody I looked up to. He's a few years older than I am. And we just built this relationship. You know, he was always going out of his way to invite me to go to dinner with him after the meetings, hang out on the weekends, you know, just putting forth that extra effort to have me be a part of his life and, you know, to, to really show me that, that there was something different this time that he was living this way of life and that he wanted to, to show other people, you know, and, and I think a lot of it was just that power of example and knowing his past and knowing that he had been in that same kind of mindset that, that I was in of going back and forth and, you know, one foot in one foot out and, and and that relationship too you know just because at that point in time you know he was one of the people that i was closest with and i think that because he said that and just like the tone and and just the seriousness of his face and you know like making direct eye contact and like you know being very very serious with me it just it had a lot of weight to it in that moment and i knew that what he was saying was genuine i knew that he wasn't he wasn't just saying it. I knew that nobody put him up to it. I knew that it was what he was feeling and what he was thinking. And I knew that he was genuine about it. And, you know, just that combined, like, like it wasn't instantaneous, but, but those words stuck with me. And, and I, I, you know, I was, I, I drove home from the meeting that night and I turned the radio off and it was just like, I was just soaking in what that conversation we had had or not really conversation. It was, it was a pretty one-sided conversation. Just like those words were just going through my head, like over and over and over again. I was just like mulling on, on those words. And it was, it was kind of an emotional experience as well. Like feeling that love and that connection from somebody else and feeling like he cares enough about me, even though I can't seem to do anything right, even though I keep, you know, I keep having these little slips and then coming back. Like he sees that I've, you know, I've tried to make an effort and then I kind of give up on it and just kind of this back and forth. And, you know, he took that time to, to say that and he sees where I'm at and he cares enough about me and he wants me to be around long enough to, you know, to get this thing and, you know, just mulling that over on the drive home. And like I said, having that flashback of, of that, that funeral that I, that I had in my head and, you know, just, it was just kind of a combination of a lot of things. And, and I think him having that conversation with me also just kind of brought up things that I had heard in the meetings. Cause there were some meetings where I was on fire and I wanted to read the book and I wanted to, 
you know, I wanted to answer the questions and do all the stuff. And there were others where I'd sit in the back of the room with my, with my arms folded and, you know, just, you know, sign my paper. So my, so my probation officer will leave me alone. And, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff that we hear in the rooms kind of came up and it was just those seeds that had been planted over time. And for whatever reason, when he said that, like, that was just, that was the moment. I, I can't, I don't really know how else to answer no, that No, 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 that's good. So the short story is lots of gratitude toward Tim. Yes. Okay. Are you still close with him? I don't see him. I don't see him as often as I, as I used to, uh, he goes to a different meeting than I do, but we still, we still talk on occasion. Okay. So let's kind of segue into, um, so you're on your recovery path. Things are going well. When, when you talked with, when you and Tim had that one-sided conversation, um, you had not yet met your wife. Is that correct? Correct. I okay. Hadn't met her. No. Okay. So um, let's segue into you're in recovery. Things are going well. Um, you've met the love of your life. Um, you, you, now you get this crazy idea that you want to do a podcast and <laughs> you, you don't, where does that come from and how does it grow to this these astronomical numbers. What, so take us to, it's two or three months before the world shuts down due to COVID. Right. So your timing couldn't have been better because people in recovery are looking for, how do I stay connected into my community? Be it podcasts, Zooming, whatever. So your timing was good, but what, does a guy like Brett Morris, how do you come up with, I think I'm going to do a podcast. Man, that that's a great question. And I feel like I get asked that question all the time and I, I don't have a really great answer for it. Um, so my wife and I have been together for, uh, we, we were actually talking about it last night and I think we decided five years. Uh, we dated for two and then we've been married for a little over three. Um, and so the podcast has been around for just over two years now. Like you said, it, it came out right before the pandemic and the lockdown and and the world got flipped upside down. Um, and I don't really have a great answer for why I started the podcast. You know, the job that I was at before the one that I'm currently at, um, I worked by myself most of the time um, and I would put in my headphones and I would listen to different podcasts and I had found several that were motivational and recovery related podcasts that I really enjoyed. And then I had some other stuff that I would listen to comedy and just kind of sci-fi, whatever, you know, I, I I just kind of dabbled in all kinds of different podcasts. And, um, and I thought to myself, I think I could do that. I think that I could have some conversations with people and have some kind of impact, have a reach and maybe be able to, to talk to some people that, maybe haven't found recovery or, you know, there's that stigma and they're afraid to go to meetings. They're afraid to ask for help. They're afraid to admit to anyone that they're struggling, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and so I, I bought a $20 microphone on Amazon and, uh, set it up in my closet with a laptop and started talking and recorded some really, really awful, intros and segues and stuff and kind of played around with it for a little bit 
and uh it was absolutely tragic um i think my wife is the only person that has ever heard those clips <laughs> and it will probably stay that way uh, but then i i found the i found an online recovery community you know i found a lot of different people on instagram and twitter and facebook and got plugged into some different online recovery groups and started having some conversations on there and as i got to know some people i asked them if they would be interested in being a guest on this podcast that I wanted to try, you know, I didn't even have a name at the time. Didn't really know a whole lot about podcasting. I had a little bit of recording experience. Um, when I was in high school going to the, the church that we were at helping out with, with the audio and video over there. So I had a little bit of experience with some audio stuff. Um, you know, not, no, not, not an expert by any means, but, enough that I felt like I could be dangerous and I could figure out how to do a podcast. Um, but really, I think, I think it was, I think it was God that just kind of gave me this desire to start a podcast and, and just the timing of it, just the way that it fell into place. Um, you know, I got to stay home from work for a little while and, and that gave me some extra time to, to find some guests and record some episodes and figure out how to edit. I didn't really know anything about editing and just kind of put the whole thing together. And it, it, it felt like it was just supposed to be, you know, it came out at the perfect time. And, um, as far as like the numbers and stuff go, I, it still kind of blows me away at times. It really does. Like I, how many people do you draw? It's once a week. Your podcast? Right. Well, I, yeah. I, so I'm involved in in two two podcasts at the moment. So I have the I have Recovery Survey, which is my original podcast, and I do one episode a week. And then there's a, another one that I do that's a live stream on Facebook and YouTube, and it's uh, it's with me. And then there's a guy named Carl who hosts a different recovery podcast. And there's a lady named Ashley, and she is the NAMI Florida president. Um, so the three of us get on here and have different guests come on and we just kind of do a live, uh, a live show, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different. We have some segments and, you know, the beginning's kind of fun and we do kind of a, a morning show kind of razz each other and, and, you know, kind of joke around and have some fun. And then we get into some serious recovery topics and, and how many people does that drop the one with, uh, people in different States? That one has kind of fluctuated, but typically that one usually has a usually low numbers is usually about three or three to four thousand, and then we've had a few episodes that have been in the twenty thousand range. So that's awesome, and and your podcast with just Brett Morris draws how many? I thought you told me a number a thousand. Uh, yeah, right. Right now, I'm I'm hitting about twelve hundred is is about my average per episode. Yeah. So you know, one of the reasons, Brett, I wanted to talk with you and why I found your story so interesting. In addition to your dad as a retired <laughs> Texas State Trooper, but that <clears throat> people in recovery need to know that this is all possible. Yeah and not to give up and to stick with it, which is what I admire so much about you and your father and how you took it to this next level and wanting to give back and figuring out how to cobble a podcast together 
when you know you had some high school experience, but it certainly wasn't um, a precursor to what you're doing now. You had to figure it out. And um, you know, I is the and I say this often, but I want to say it again that the more arrows in someone's recovery quiver, the better, right? Because mm-hmm. you might not be into yoga, Brett. Maybe it's exercise for you. Maybe it's uh, you need a free bus pass. Maybe it's just tuning into a meeting like your podcast where you can learn from other people. People, there is no one size fits all for recovery. Just like there is really no one size fits all for people with different types of cancer or diabetes, you know, and so I'll say it again. If, if you are in recovery and you can use Brett's podcast as another arrow in your recovery quiver, um, you're better off for it. Right. Absolutely. And, and one of the beautiful things that I've found just through doing the podcast and getting to have conversations with so many people, I mean, I've had, Oh, I'm, I'm a little over a hundred episodes in at this point. Um, there's just so many different viable ways to recover. There's so many different avenues. If you go to a 12 step meeting and, and it just doesn't fit, that doesn't mean that you can't recover. You know, there's so many different things. There's smart recovery. There's recovery Dharma. You know, there's all these different avenues that you can take to recover and you just have to find that community find that place where you belong i've had conversations with people that don't even go to meetings but they're involved in a recovery yoga class and that's their meeting is they go to that yoga class and they do a little meditation and then they talk with the people after the after they do their yoga and that's their form of a meeting so there's just so many different options and I think that if we if we have this limited view of this is what recovery is and this is the only way to recover, then we're not going to be able to reach the people that really need to hear that message. And there's just so many different ways that we can go about it. And like you said, having that that quiver full of arrows, you know, there's so many different things that we can do to add to to our recovery and and even podcasts and YouTube and that kind of stuff. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a recovery you know, a recovery program, there's plenty of things that are self-help or motivational or encouraging that can help us in, in those different, in our, in our recovery journey. And I think for me as well, just the podcasting thing, like finding a hobby was, was pretty important as well. Like finding something that was creative that I could focus on in my free time that I could do that I knew was something that was positive. And that was, that was a good one for me. I, I tried my hand at a lot of different hobbies, you know, before I found podcasts. I'll tell you, Brett, I, I was going to say this till the end of the meeting, but our next meeting in June is on the importance of different sorts of things that you can do while you're in recovery. We're going to call it just expression that we're going to define as art, music. Maybe we'll even throw in podcasting community that you you got to try all these things, but they're all very important. And we're going to showcase two um, guys, David Awadala, who's on our advisory board, and Bryce Cobb, who is a part of the Phoenix Gym. Those are the people that, yeah, that go nationwide and help start gyms for people in recovery. 
they're going to share their story and friendship and how through music um, they met and cranked out this amazing tune that we're going to premiere at our uh, meeting, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yeah, uh, but it, it is. And I wanted to read this question. Um, in your father's description of your arc of recovery, one of the things um, was that of discipline and a sense of kind of old school values of accountability, owning the consequences of your actions without a sense of being coddled, rescued, sheltered from these realities. Do you believe that this was an important, e an important ingredient leading to your, excuse me, leading to your success? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I was actually, I, I pulled that up a second ago when I saw the little bubble pop up. Um, I would say, yes, definitely. It was in hindsight, living it in the moment, having to deal with these repercussions, having to deal with, with that kind of strict old school discipline. I did not like it. You know, I had, I had become accustomed to doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, you know, just kind of I guess the best way that I could describe the way I was living was just pleasure seeking whatever I could find that gave me pleasure is what I would do. And that was the most important thing to me at that time and coming into coming back home to that, that old school style of discipline was not pleasant. I didn't enjoy it, but in hindsight, I definitely think that that helped contribute to my success. I think that that helped me, really, I think having to deal with the consequences was a huge, a huge piece of my recovery. Cause I can remember like my dad was talking about having to get a job almost immediately when, when I got, when I got back to his house, um, I actually, I found, I found my little, my pin. I worked at waffle house for a little while. I found my waffle house 2012, uh, pin. So his timeline was a little off. I think he said 2014. Uh, so it was 2012. Um, but that's neither here nor there. But um, and I and I I found that in a box because my wife and I just moved a few months ago, and and I kept it on my desk because it's a reminder of of where I've been and where I'm going. Um, and this was pretty much one of the lowest points of my life was riding my bike in the summer to Waffle House. You know that was that was not a highlight of my life, but. I think because of the, that, those old school values and of him not trying to coddle me, I think that that really did help me feel those consequences. It helped me understand that for every action, there's a reaction. Um, and, and just being, just having to come back to reality because I lived in that fantasy world of escaping my reality and, and hiding from pain and hiding from my feelings and, and emotions and, you know, had to get a job and had to start making payments. You know, there was a, a pretty hefty financial burden from that DWI and, and paying for that property damage. And I had to go to a bunch of different classes and those cost money. I had to go to Mothers Against Drunk Driving and all these different classes. As so you had to pony up for the damage to those cars in that house? Uh, insurance covered some of it. They, they covered the majority of it, but there was still all i think total i think i had to pay about twelve thousand dollars for all the the property damage and the dwi and the classes and all that and you know when i when i got arrested i think i had like 
$20 in my pocket and that was the extent of the money that I had. So I, I was, I was broke and you know, I had to, I had to take responsibility and had to pay those fees and you know, like, like, like you were saying, you know, that old school, not coddling or being rescued or being sheltered, but I am, I am grateful. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that my parents allowed me to move back into their house, even though at the time yeah. it was the last place. You, you know what I, I res- again, what your dad did. And I think it's important for not only parents, but friends of people in recovery. He didn't give up on you. Mm-hmm. I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brett, but you knew on some level that your dad loved you and that he put those boundaries up for that reason. Yeah. And um, it ended up working out. It ended up working out. And um, I just did just uh, there, you know, I want to share with you a text message that came to me and it's kind of crazy. And I don't know if this happens to you on your podcast, but I get stuff emailed to me during these Zoom meetings. I get stuff text to me. Hey, ask him this, ask him that. Um, <laughs> you, you got a piece of hair sticking up on your head. I mean, I get all kinds of stuff. But somebody sent me uh, this who's in recovery. A key word, Mario, is community. Mm, yes. That find your group. Successful recovery does not happen alone. And And... You did that. Um, you found that. You sought that out. And um, and and that's just not for people in recovery. That's also for families and friends of people in recovery, you know? And uh, I, does anybody have any questions for Brett before we um, I'll check on the, the – no, we've got – by the way, just so you know, Brett, that was a physician who asked that question, who asked that question about boundaries. And I'm happy to report that physician is present at virtually all of our uh, meetings. Dr. David Gordon, he's an awesome guy. I wanted to thank your amazing father, um, as well as your mom, even though she's not here. I'm certain, yes, I'm unbelievably proud of him. By the way, why recovery survey? What's up with that, Morris? What's what? Where'd you get that name? That's a good question. So I I had a, a slightly different concept for the podcast when I first started it, um, and it didn't quite pan out the way that I wanted it to. But my original concept was I was going to have one topic, and then I was going to survey a. a a big group of people and get everybody's answers to that one question and, and put it all together into one episode. And one of the things that I found out very quickly is that people in recovery can be a little bit self-centered and they don't like to share. And a lot of people just wanted to do their own solo episodes. Um, so if you scroll way back, I think like episode three or four is one of those um, group episodes, but I think that was the only one that I actually did. And that's kind of where the name came from. That, that works for me. Um, <laughs> you, I will tell you, you, you must be aware your rating is, I think, the best you can get. On, it's on Apple, I think. Mm-hmm. 
And I think you've got five stars, five out of five. And you've got, I don't know, what what did your dad say? Over a hundred, what is it, pod, podcast now going? And I tuned, I tuned into that. I don't know if it was the two-year episode or where you were celebrating. Oh, doing it was episode 100. Yeah. Episode, episode 100. I actually listened to it, and it was people chiming in, congratulating you. I heard a recording from your wife, which, uh, like I said, it just, I could go on and on, but I wanted to, um, you know, Brett, I would love to send you a copy of this. Oh, I did share a copy. What What did you think about it? By it the was way? fantastic. I wish that when I had read through this, I had highlighted it because it's been, it's been a little while since I've read it and I wish I had highlighted it so that I could like bring pieces out and and talk about them no it's okay i you know the yes thing, you did you did send me a copy okay. several months ago okay it um you know one of the things that i think the reason it reads the way that it does is it doesn't read like something in a research article mm. it's got it's replete with quotes from people in recovery who say this is how stigma made me feel and I, I know of nothing that's more convincing about changing someone's view uh, about people battling the disease of addiction than to hear from them their own words on how it made them feel to be referred to as whatever those words that you hear often and, and how it made them take a step backward in their recovery. And so that's why we publish this so that we can educate everyone on there's a better way. And it starts with choosing our words more carefully when we're, we're talking about the disease of addiction. So with that, um, my friend, you're awesome. I don't know if your dad's still here. He's incredible too. I can't thank you both enough for sharing your stories um, because that's how we learn, right? That's one of the main reasons you do your podcast is so that you can hopefully make a difference in someone's life who is right where you were seven or eight years ago uh, or however long it's been, um, Brett. And I thank you for that. So um, with that, everyone, that thank you, sir. Again, Brett, thank I'll be- the opportunity. Yep, if I can help you, in any way, please um, reach out to me. I'm all about that. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And and everyone for, for uh, Zooming in, thank you. Um, appreciate everyone who took the time to Zoom in. Take care, Brett. Thanks, you too. Mario, thank you again for having us on. We had a great time talking with you guys, and I'm so thankful that you invited us to be a part of the Families Against Narcotics event. If you guys are interested in learning more about FAN or if you're interested in learning about the workbook that Mario helped put together, I'm Still a Person, The Stigma of Substance Use and the Power of Respect, be sure to check out the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.